Welcome back again, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here. I appreciate y'all tuning in to this station, another CHP special episode. Yeah, I managed to trick yet another China specialist into coming on this battle-tested, long-lasting family podcast program. Thanks to my longtime Patreon patron, Mark, from the great football nation of Belgium. We're going to look at another little-known story that comes to us from that great land, home of the rock band Heatherside. And to help me tell this story, I'm happy to introduce Mr. Kyle D. Anderson onto the CHP, talking to me from the opposite side of this country over on the East Coast. Kyle's the VP Strategic Programming at API, a leader in study abroad and experiential learning and a former professor, as well as an administrator in higher education. But that's not why he's here. Kyle's also a translator of Chinese children's and adult contemporary literature. And we're here to talk about a new book by the author Xu Feng that Kyle translated with Yilin Press. It's coming out soon. And it's called Forget Me, Wang Ji Wo. And it tells the story of Qian Xioling, the woman we'll be discussing today. Welcome to the CHP, Kyle. Thank you so much, Lazo, and thanks for having me on. I'm happy to talk with uh, your audience. You've had quite a career in study abroad programs and educating people about the world and world cultures. What was your path to becoming a translator of Chinese fiction and nonfiction? Uh, I love this. I was lucky enough to be brought up in a family where there was a lot of intercultural influence. Uh, when I was young, we actually lived in the Middle East at one point. My, mother, my father was working for the government. And so I just kind of had all these influences, international influences. So when I grew up and I decided what I wanted to do, um, I was I had a couple really good teachers. And I said, you know, I want to try that. And it happened to be when I was at college and, you know, the beginning of the 2000s, China was on the rise. I, I discovered that I was really good at learning languages and I was fascinated by Chinese philosophy. So I kind of threw myself into that. Um and along my path, being a professor and an administrator in higher ed, I wanted to stay in touch with contemporary Chinese culture. Because as you know real well, Laszlo, I know we're, we're, we're always like uh, historians here. But a lot of times in the West, we get trapped in these older visions, right? Or these older notions of what a, a China is, right? And, we, and we're always like 40 years behind what's actually happening there. Because we're thinking about Mao or we're thinking about... Uh, Confucianism and like what's happening in Tiananmen right now, right? That sort of thing. So I found that, uh, you know, getting with these presses and doing translation was a way to keep me in touch with what readers were reading in China, uh, giving me fresh content to share with my students. So again, I'm not just conveying old stuff that might be obsolete, but, uh, you know, from children's to adult stuff, keeping, keeping things engaging, keeping me interested, keeping my students interested. Great. And how did you get hooked up with Wang Chi author Xu Feng? And why did he write this book? Okay. So this, this just came well, mostly. It's a long story, from, right? <laughs> right, right, right. It was, you know, I didn't actually know Xu Feng. Um, it, this came from uh, my relationship with Elian Press. I've done, I, I don't know, a dozen or two dozen books with them. And occasionally what they'll do, you know, based on my profile and what I've done, they'll say, hey, you want to do this? This came out of the blue. Because I'm basically, you know, given my literary background, they just give me fiction. And they said, hey, there's this really important book. Uh, I think you might want to take a look at it. 
And I said, oh, nonfiction, huh? <laughs> but then I started reading it and that just the character, the main character here, it's, I shouldn't call character, right? This person, um, Chen Xioling is so compelling, so fascinating. This was a story that blew my mind that I haven't ever heard of in everything I've read about China. I've never heard of this story. It's never been taught in our World War II history courses, for sure, uh, in the West. Since I said, this person needs to be known. This person is wonderful, and I want to be a part of it. So so let's talk about Chen Xiuling. She was born in a well-to-do family in Jiangsu, in uh, Yixing. And because of her good fortune and the family she grew up in, she had access to the best possible education. So... Right. What about her early life and how did she end up in Belgium? Right. I, I, I love this, this part of the story. Uh, Xu Feng spent about 16 years researching all of this, going through the archives, watching every documentary, every CCTV thing done on her. And he uncovered some really interesting stuff. And some of the most fascinating stuff is about her childhood. Um, and her, it, it started with uh, the way Xu Feng writes about it. He writes about this long history of the family going back to really prestigious historical figures that everyone in China knows. Um, but her father, Xi Shun, um, and their family estate, he opened up their ancestral hall and turned it into a local school. Her father was obsessed with education. And he wanted every kid, it wanted to, he wanted to create like mandatory school for everybody. And the, and the townspeople all pushed back because they're a bunch of farmers. So they thought he was crazy. Um, and his daughter, uh, Chen Xioling, when she was in um, this, the school that he had set up, Mr. Gao. in the 1920s? Right. And, and he, he had brought in a teacher from the city called Mr. Gao, who was brilliant. And Mr. Gao almost immediately told her dad, you got to get her out of here. And he's like, what? He's like, she's way too smart. <laughs> so she she <laughs> became ex- China. Right. She became extremely she was like really precocious. She was like reading all her dad's books. He'd sneak in like really uh, high level books, really erudite books. And she'd be reading them on her own. Like and when Mr. Gao in class would try to call her out because she wasn't paying attention, you know, she would stand up and start reciting like for minutes on end, these classical texts. And he was just floored. So she was brilliant. She was, I can't, I can't say she's a savant, but apparently she was very, very brilliant at a very young age. And so they were sort of finding ways to move her out of the village uh, to Shanghai, to Suzhou uh, to get better schooling. And while she was there, she, um, for a, a number of reasons, following some of her family members, uh, following a hero she had, Madame Curry. She wanted to be Madame Curry, right? She wanted that. That was her. Uh, that was her uh, idol. And all those people were in Belgium, and so she said, "You know, I want to go. I want to KU Leuven or the the Catholic Leuven uh, University, and in, uh, mm. in in Brussels." And so. There's a whole, you got to read the book because there's a whole uh, drama around sending a young Chinese girl, right, in the early 20th century to uh, Europe when when there's all sorts of things that, China, that in Chinese culture would require for her to stay home, right? So she's fighting all of that, trying to be a new woman, right? The new woman, part of the new women of China. And there's a whole drama involved in that. But she was so obsessed with education. She was so precocious. She wanted to be Madame Curry. 
And so she fought, fought all those tides and, and got to Belgium. So she got to Belgium. This is uh, before World War II. So 1930s, what was she doing uh, in Belgium before occupation? What was she studying? Right. So she joined the Department of Chemistry. Uh, I, well, before that, she she had to learn French, right? She had to she had to learn some French and Dutch. And um, she started picking that up on her own. And she was like anything else you've ever picked up. She learned it quite quickly and learned it well. So she was in a preparatory school. Uh, there for a while, learned the languages really well, and then got her way into the Department of Chemistry. And she was just as successful there as she was back in China, in Yixing. Um, all, hmm. her all her classmates were wowed by her ability to, to memorize, recite, and even challenge her instructors. The way that Xu Feng talks about her, it doesn't seem very like, like, a, like the typical Chinese student who absorbs right uh, at a much higher level than their peers, but keeps quiet and then produces. No, she was actually quite vocal. They said she was quite, quite vocal in the ways we think maybe like a Western student challenges their instructors. That's how she was. Um, so she was doing really well. And then she went, I guess that wasn't enough for her. So she went and got PhDs in chemistry and physics. She's like, ah, chemistry is too easy. I guess I'll do physics too. <laughs> so, uh, and then she, she she got herself some, she, she yeah, she got herself some research lab positions, and uh, she was she was she was pr not pretty. She was very successful. Won a bunch of scholarships. One of the boxer in indemnity scholarships that were available to Chinese at the time, and um, so just really uh, a great student all the way around. So we remember her most for the three moments when Chen Xiuling stepped up and demonstrated her humanity by first interceding in an execution of Belgian nationals by German soldiers during the occupation, uh, May 1940 to uh, February 1945. So what happened there? These really are the stories that earned her this Belgian Schindler moniker. So let's really, right. let's get into the, the, the main part of the story here. Right. Um, these are the things that, and the stories that I was shocked I had never heard of. Right. Um, before I get Me into neither. the detail, yeah, the, before I get into the detail, I just want to say that th this was the thing that touched me the deepest. And by the way, like everyone I talk to, whether it's a, a friend, a colleague, or my parents to this day, I, I try to tell them about this. <laughs> I say, no one knows about this. You need to hear these stories. Um, it, it exemplifies, I, Xu Feng phrased it this way, and I think a lot of the, the Chinese media outlets have phrased it this way, and I think they're correct. She demonstrates this, um, this idea of universal humanity that we rarely see. We often hear about folks that might share our national uh, uh, citizenship or might share our race or might share our background saving and helping us. But it's quite a different thing for someone to come from a completely different world on the other side of the world with really no shared background in your country, saving your people, right? That, that is it's, and the, and the way she did it, you know, as, as, as a woman at that time with kids, she had toddlers, she had toddlers with her when she did this. It's incredible. It's incredible. So I just I just wanted to stamp that on on this before I get into the story. 
So yeah, there's there's numerous stories. The three that we focus on the most are when she saved um, um, uh, Roger, who was uh, a past uh, the son of a pastor in her, the small village of Herbeaumont, where her and her husband, uh, who's actually a he was a Belgian national too, Gregory Perengi, um, they had settled. Uh, there's a long story of why she ended up there in that small city outside of Brussels, but basically she wanted to be a, a mom and support her husband in his career as a doctor. And so they, they found their way into this small, small town near the French border. Um, and while they were there, the occupation occurred. Uh, uh, the Nazis came into Belgium, took over, and they were stuck in the small town uh, with the politics of being very close to France uh, the resistant movements in the area and the Nazis breathing down on their neck. And she was there just being a nurse to her husband in his, in his um, clinic. And they were pretty close to the folks in Arabamont. And the local pastor basically said, the Nazis got my son uh, and told uh, Gregory and, and uh, Scholling, and he's going to be executed. What is amazing in this story, and people say, you know, the divine fate, God, or whoever, everyone's got different opinions about this in the, in, in the story, but she had almost a direct line to the occupying viceroy or military governor of Belgium at the time, Alexander von Falkenhausen. And you're like, well, how is that even possible? I can't do it justice. You've got to get the book and read about her, her, her cousin, her cousin, Zhuo Lun, uh, because he, Qian Lun. yes, yes, Qian Lun, who was a lieutenant general to Zhang Jiexi, Chiang Kai-shek, right? Who was assigned many years right earlier, who was assigned to accompany the German military as they were uh, supporting and reviewing Chiang Kai-shek's troops while in China. So Alexander von Falkenhausen was going around the country this entire time in the background while Chen Shuling is growing up and going all to these colleges and getting they knew the, him and had met him. Right. And they're coming like he's getting he's getting he's he's becoming enamored with the Chen family. Shuling doesn't know who he is when she's growing up. But her 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 cousin is her his one of his best friends. And so when he when the war breaks out and he returns to Germany on an on a assignment and appointment under Hitler, right, she eventually connects in this in this crisis moment where Roger's going to be killed. She just remembers, oh, wait, I have a connection to uh, Falkenhausen through my cousin. <laughs> so she writes her cousin a letter saying, hey, this terrible thing's about to happen. Can you put some, can, can you, you know, call in a favor with Falkenhausen? Um, and it, it 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 turns out that. It's it, there's a lot of steps along the way, and uh, it, you know it's like any story. It's exciting. It's it's terrifying, but she works her way with one of her children, who's an infant, to uh, the Schaefer Castle, and uh, meets Falkenhausen for the first time. Um, and it's it's a fascinating it's a fascinating moment where Falkenhausen he he didn't he didn't meet her when she was little, but he recognizes her eyes, her attitude, and he's like, "Oh, you're a Chen." You're a Chen. He's like, your brazenness, your directness, everything. I remember your cousin, and he's my best friend. And one of the greatest lines um, or greatest moments, I think, in the text is when Falkenhausen's there, and she's pleading with him in front of him, and he just sort of stops for a moment. She's staring at him, 
and he gets real nostalgic for China. Like that that was really interesting. He he was looking at pictures that she had given him of of her cousin and of China, and he goes, "My forever lost days in China." Um, and so you see the tenderness. Like Shu Feng does a great job of describing the tenderness uh, that's in Falkenhausen. Who you know, there's all sorts of reasons to describe him as a monster, right? Um, but that's the first. Yeah. That's the that's the first moment. And then when she gets home, everyone's celebrating. She's like, "What happened?" And they're like, "Oh, you know." Roger's fine. <laughs> uh, so Falkenhausen, you know, uh, granted her wish that moment. So, yeah. So he got one, uh, the first right. one off the hook and she established a name for herself and she was a hero within that community. But uh, then comes a bigger chance. Right. Right. And that, that comes later. But in the same small town, there's some German officials that are sent there to to, to, to keep a closer eye on things because the resistant movement is 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 gaining force in Erbemont and they're getting stricter and crueler, let's say. And um, there are some there are four Waffen SS officers that are killed um, in the town. And this is at the point where the, the, the Nazis are just like, you know, it's not going to be an eye and eye, a tooth for a tooth. We're just going to kill you all unless you tell us who killed our Waffen FS, SS officers. So they said every six hours we're going to be killing someone in this town and then you ha- unless you hand over the murderers. And, you know, Schoeling she just can't have this. She's got too much of a sense of justice and humanity. She said that you can't just start killing innocent people. You can't do this. So she storms with her husband, who's probably terrified. Right? They storm into, by the way, her husband never initiated this. This was all her, right? This is all her. They store, they storm into Lieutenant mm-hmm. Keitel, his name, Lieutenant Keitel's office. And, uh, you know, she whips out a card that Falkenhausen had given to her like a business card that nobody has, right? You got, you probably, there's probably like five people in the world that have it pulls it out and shows Lieutenant Keitel and says, cause he would like, he wouldn't move on it. And she goes, Oh yeah, well let's, uh, let's call your boss. And he's just like, what? His, his first question is like, first of all, how did you get this card? And second of all, like he probably needed to change his underwear. I don't know, but, but he was, he was freaking out. He, he was freaking out, <laughs> uh, but he still thought he had the upper hand because he's like, there's no way you can call the direct line. Even if you have this card, there's no way he's going to pick up. He's too busy, man. So he humored her and he's like, okay, yeah, go call her. I'll go call him. Go call the Schaefer Castle. The terrifying thing about this story, read it again because I can't convey it, but it's like she has to try like three or four times to get to Falkenhausen. And each time she fails because of the uh, switchboard operator doesn't let her through or the call isn't answered or whatever, Keitel gets more and more proud. He like gets more and more intimidating. He's just like, yeah, you're, you're going to get it and your people are going to get it. But like by some great miracle, like the last time she smashes those buttons, it gets through. He answers and she, she passes the phone to a Lieutenant Keitel and, uh, he, the guy starts sweating profusely and uh, he's just hearing, he's hearing <laughs> Falkenhausen just yammer at him on the phone. And uh, I, I can't imagine the satisfaction that, that Gregory and, and Cho Ling were feeling inside. But, you know, when he put that phone down, that was it. Those, uh, those, those people in, in, the, in the town were saved. Keitel was told to cut it out. And uh, so that's another moment where, where the connections and her persistence and her courage came through. That's number two. 
did Falkenhausen get any heat from Nazi command from Berlin? You know, saying, why are you so soft on the uh, resistance, the Belgian resistance? I mean, I, that's a really good question. I thought about that myself all the way through, because as, as we know, the Nazis weren't a monolith, right? There were a lot of anti-Hitler folks within the army, uh, a lot of anti-Hitler folks within the ranks. Falkenhausen was one of them. He was an anti-Hitler general. Um, so I think they were all spying each other from the beginning. So, right. That, I thought the same thing. I'm like, they, they, they had to have noticed eventually. First of all, this young Chinese woman sticks out, right? When she's making it through all the checkpoints and she does it a few more times, like, you know, she's got to get on somebody's list. Um, and I'm sure she was. And I think he did because at the end of his career, the last moment that um, Shouling met him and and talked to him, um, he basically said to her, I'm not going to be around for much longer. In fact, um, there's some Gestapo in the next room. They've got everything bugged, right? I, I, I think I'm done. I think I'm done. Um, I don't know all of Falkenhausen's history. He, I, I know he had been bugged and they knew oh, that's, that's probably not the only thing he was doing. And I think we all know that he was connected to the attempt on Hitler's life as well. Um, uh, whether directly or indirectly, he was involved with that group. So, yeah, they probably knew something about it. But that, that last moment when she saved a bunch of people, um, I'll tell the story a little bit. Um, it was actually not in Erbomont. It was in a totally different city. It was in the city of uh, Ekausin and uh, outside of, of Brussels. And what had happened is three Waffen SS were killed there. And the Nazi response is, well, we're going to take 96 of your people, your citizens, and kill them. Right? And she didn't know anything about this. But what happened is resistance movement people in that town had heard of her fame. And they had they had nothing else they could do. So they were just like, there's some Chinese woman <laughs> who like works magic on the Nazis. And so in the middle of the night, um, the head of the movement and a couple of his deputies drove all the way down very, and, you know, in very dangerous conditions down to Erbemont, you know, very far away, woke her up in the middle of the night and said, can you help us? And her, her husband said, get out of here. Uh, you know, don't put my wife in danger. And she sort of pushed him aside and said, you know, look, we, these are innocent lives. we got to do something about it, which again, just shows her courage. So she, she acted on it and they, they drove um, to the castle again and she forced her way basically into Falkenhausen's office. All sorts of blocks were put up in her way, but again, her persistence, her stubbornness, her righteousness, right? She pushed her way into that office um, and he told her, look, I'm in a desperate situation. The Gestapo are here. They're probably going to take my life any day. Um, don't ever come back here again or you're probably going to disappear too. But he said, you know, I'll, I'll do my best. And, you know, he did. He was able to to pull through. And, and save that group again. So, you know, every time she approached him and every time she mentioned and brought back to memory his relationship with Zhuo Lun, Falkenhausen responded. Uh, this was, again, it's, it's hard to, to want to paint the humanity 
of a Nazi, Nazi general especially. But this is a really, really interesting and complicated story of, of people working together in really bad situations trying to save lives. Yeah. And then really the best part of the story comes after VE Day. So what happened to the Nazi war criminal now, General Falkenhausen? Uh, how did his uh, path cross with Chen oh, Shouling one more time? Goodness. So, you know, everyone wanted vengeance. Everyone wanted vengeance. The, you know, the Nazi regime fa- fell and they all wanted vengeance. They all wanted to uh, execute and, and, and punish uh, all those involved. And so Falkenhausen sort of made his way from prison to prison to prison. No one could really find him or track him. No one really knew where he was. Um, Chen Shouling did her homework, tracked him down. Um, and he, I remember the descriptions. You should, uh, the, when you read it, you'll see Xu Feng's descriptions of Falkenhausen when um, Shouling met him in prison. And he was basically an emaciated skeleton, right? Which some people think is poetic justice for what he did, for what his party did to the Jews. But you can imagine what he looked like was what the victims of the Nazis looked like in concentration camp. That was very much how they described him. He didn't even, he didn't even look like a, a human mm. anymore. He was pretty much a ghost. Um, wow. And he was dying and he didn't really have, it didn't seem to be present. Um, and she began a personal mission to reveal to the world what he had done to save the innocent Belgians, which nobody wanted to hear, right? Because they wanted to put him on trial and execute him, right? Uh, this, was, this was part of the, the theater of Belgium coming back into its own, reclaiming its sovereignty and independence. And how are we going to do that? We're going to put this, you know, the guy, the, the Nazi military general, the, the gov- military governor who uh, was responsible for all sorts of atrocities, and we're going to put it on the, his head and take it off, right? But she was just saying, she, you, you all don't realize that you're, not only me, but your own people don't think he is the way you're painting him to be. So what she did is she created a campaign where she went around collecting letters, evidence, and signatures of all of the people that he had saved and created just this massive portfolio. So when they put on, uh, I can't say, I want to say put it on national television, but it probably wasn't. It was probably national radio. When they put it on national, the, 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 the uh, trials on national display, um, and it was going to be, you know, a given that they're, they're just, they're just going to accuse him and then, and then, and then send him off for, for, for punishment. Um, no, she showed up and she showed up with the hostages, right? That he had saved and they put on their own display. Um, wonderful details. I won't reveal them all, but it, it, the drama of standing up and testifying and pushing back against the judge and pushing back against the royalty and saying, Hey, this is, uh, this is not who he is. It's much more complicated than that. Um, she also had a friend who was in love with him. And had had sort of nursed him back to health. And she was there as well, supporting him. And so they just really gummed up and complicated things for 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 Belgium because they actually saw that this man was was pretty complicated and he had saved some innocent lives. And um, so they were they were put in quite a pickle. But 
I think that is the most of, you know, she, she's obviously displayed courage all along, exceptionally smart, almost a savant. Um, and she saved a bunch of people, but it seems like the thing that put her most in danger was, you know, in, in the court of public opinion was her doing this to defend Falkenhausen. That shows a level of courage that I've rarely seen. She was, she didn't have that level of pride where she was trying to save her and her husband's and her family's own skin and reputation. She knew this man. She didn't think he was getting justice. And so she stepped up and, and defended him. That's uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was the best part of the story and really just shows so much humanity after just the, just such a horrible, horrible period in world history certainly in the, in the country of Belgium, what they went through. Right. She saw it that way too. She actually said, we've been through all this stuff. You don't want to make a mistake of killing somebody and then being judged by history that you didn't get it right. So she was actually trying to point out to them, Hey, don't make the same mistake that your enemies did. Like you need to see him for what he actually was. Yeah. Yeah. So like the Chinese Schindler, He Fengshan, after the war, Chen Xiaoling, she went mm-hmm. on with her life. And though she was lionized in the town of Ecosine, she, she just sort of fell back into a normal routine and didn't go about advertising her deeds during occupation. So what happened to Chen Xiaoling oh. in the 1950s up to her passing in 2008? Yeah, this is what makes the story really interesting, right? So she's she's such an ex- exceptional person. We know that. But she didn't view herself that way. She never did. She sort of rejected it. So she had no problem being her husband's nurse, even though she was a you know a d- dual PhD from a foreign country out of one of the most important historic universities in the world. <laughs> she uh, had saved a bunch of people in Belgium. She had gotten a national award right from the country as well as a national hero. I think one of the only people that, or maybe the only one I have to look up that fact, but a foreigner anyway, to get it in Belgium. Didn't they name a street after her in uh, Echo scene? What was it called that they didn't call it Chen Xioling street? What was it called? Chen Xioling de Perlingini Boulevard or something like that. They did. They named a street after her too. Um, they also named another street hostage street, but the sort of part of the story. Um, but yeah, so she had celebrity. What do you think someone's going to do? I mean, I would trade it in and do and get a great position somewhere. No, you know, she 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 raised her kids, and then she's like, "Hmm, I want to be an entrepreneur." And she opened up a succession of like three to four restaurants in Belgium. Just, yeah, in Brussels, she started she started opening up these uh, you know Chinese restaurants, the ones that we see in the U.S. right or, or other places. Um, she said, you know, I want to do this because, because she, and there's all, there's always a benevolent aspect to this with her. She wanted to, um, create a, a space or a hub for, um, Chinese abroad and support the community, feed them things so that they could remember their hometowns. Cause she mm-hmm. was nostalgic. She wanted to be back in China, but she couldn't because of, uh, because, because Mao was in charge, right. And <laughs> she couldn't get back there. And so she was just running these restaurants. They weren't very successful. She tried her best. She did authentic Chinese, didn't work. She did, uh, you know, Chinese Belgian mix, uh, eh, more or less. She tried 
like just Belgian food, a popular restaurant. And that was okay. But it was just, you know, running a restaurant's hard anyway. And she wasn't a great, she wasn't a great business person because what we learn is that, um, she loved people more and the social aspect of the business more. So she was basically bleeding money because she was giving people free food and, (laughs) you know, not Mm. creating enough margin and things like that. So why was it, uh, you know, the title of the book, Wang Chi Wu, Forget Me. Why did she want to be forgotten? It it goes back to her humility and it's not false humility. She really just didn't believe that she was a hero. She, what she believed was, well, if you had a brother and he was connected (laughs) to a general, you would have done the same thing. We don't think that's true, but she thought that was true. She, she, she thought putting her neck on the line, maybe she didn't realize she was putting it. I think she did realize she was putting her neck on the line. She, she thinks that everyone would do that. I don't, I think we know that that's not true, but she thought it was, um, she thought her courage was common. And so she, uh, would tell people left and right, her, uh, interviewers, Xu Feng, uh, all others just, you know, Wang Jiu, for, 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 forget about me. Uh, let's not talk about that. Cause they would always come to her decade after decade and say, Hey, we want the new scoop. We want you to tell this story. We want to do this CCTV series on you. And she's like, stop. Like, I don't want to talk about that. Let's talk about my restaurant, right? Let's talk about my nieces. Let's talk about my nephews. Like, they're like, why do we want to talk about that? We want to talk about you and Falkenhausen. She's like, uh, <laughs> she didn't, she didn't want to, she didn't want to play the hero. Well, how, how long, how much longer did Falkenhausen live? Did he, uh, he lived, he lived quite a bit longer. I think I, I don't know the precise answer to that. Uh, mm-hmm. but he lived, he lived with that woman who loved, uh, who loved him. Right. And we nursed him uh, back to health, uh, for a number of years. I can't remember how long, uh, you'll have to fact check it for me, like 10 or 20 years. It wasn't a couple. It was, a, it was a number of years later mm-hmm. and then he, he died and then, uh, but she always remembered him, you know, uh, very fondly. She did get back to China a couple mm-hmm. of times to visit her hometown. Uh, again, she loved, she loved China and, uh, it was really disturbing and hard for her to go back and see a post Mao China. Cause you remember she had left right during the Republican period mm-hmm. or during the civil war and during the occupation and hadn't just had heard things and hadn't seen them. And so she went back to try to trace her roots back to, to Yixing County and, and her village and um, see her father's old estate. And I mean, any, any listener here can guess what she saw. <laughs> yeah, that's that's common with a lot of when you when Chinese went back in the seventies and started seeing what they had last seen maybe thirty forty years before, it was quite a disappointment. Right. I was saying, especially if you were a landowner, right? Which they were. So their buildings were occupied. Yeah, they were uh definitely one of the five black uh categories. She was, uh, yeah, she was very modest in a uh, in a heroic way. You know, you contrast that you contrast that with our in our day when anyone who uh, you know does a good deed, the first thing they go is run to social media and say, right. "Hey, you know, look what I did." 
So <laughs> it's uh, it's inspirational to hear these stories about, you know, people who really follow the teachings of the ancient Chinese philosophers who used to say, you know, a good deed should be done for the sake of right. the goodness of doing the deed. And right. Once you, you know, start telling others, you know, about what uh, the solid you did for somebody, it negates the, the, the good deed and turns it into something artificial, you know, done for you know, reasons of seeking praise or adulation. So hers was a uh, great story. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to reading this book. When's it coming out? There's still, so Elin Press, um, first of all, the the book's doing really well. People really want the story to get out. And so I think it's already being translated into six or seven different languages. The English one that I was involved with, uh, they're looking for the proper press to place it with now. Um, I think that's going on right now. It hasn't, I haven't been told when the release date is. I think they're doing that right now. But I imagine in the next year, uh, this came out in Chinese last year in 2021. And so, uh, you know, I imagine 2020, 2023, probably. Very interesting that uh, that was quite a story. And once again, time flies when you're having fun. I want to thank you again for coming on the CHP and introducing the life of Qian Ling, the Belgian Schindler. She didn't save any Jews, but still, she uh, a human life is a human life. And right. uh, she uh, did some great things in Belgium during her time. So that, that moniker, that sacred Schindler name, which, which, right. which has so much meaning behind it, she was worthy of that name. So uh, what do you got going on now? Any good translation projects to uh, speak of? Yeah, so a a couple things. So um, yeah, I've got a new uh, commission to, it's it's more nonfiction, actually. Apparently, I've gotten on someone's nonfiction list. Great. (laughs) uh, Doing a big big historical and like ecological field guide to the Sanjiang Yuan National Park, which sounds fascinating, the Tibetan Plateau. Uh, so that that should be really interesting. That's new territory for me, but I wanted to share with everyone. I've you know I've always been a poet and a writer in my own right, um, and I recently completed my first fantasy novel. Oh wow! It'll interest your audience because it's based on the uh, famous classical text, the Shanghai Jing, the uh, the Mountain Sea Chronicles or the Mountain Sea Scroll, mm. which inspired everyone for centuries in China with its crazy stories of it's, it's almost like a lion, the witch in the wardrobe uh, slash bestiary slash, I don't know, Peter Panny kind of uh, book that talks about crazy f- people and animals and mythical beasts. And is this like Sha or mythical time? Right. What, uh, uh, right. Right. And, and that, that classical text actually inspired Lu Xun, right? It was big. Uh, Lu Xun was fascinated by it too. So what I just decided was, you know, I'd seen in uh, American and British popular young uh, reader lit the rise of like the uh, Greek mythology genre, right? The Maze Runner and all that stuff. And I said, hey, look, China's got some awesome texts out there. Um, And I had always loved to write. And so I said, okay. I'm going to create this cohort, this little, this little group of brothers and sisters, like in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and they're going to go, they're going to find this world that's described by this real ancient Chinese text called the Shanghai Jing, and they're going to go save some 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 people in it. And so it's fun, and I finished it. And one of my childhood um, friends, who I used to 
paint with. He's a famous American illustrator. He's joined me on the project and he's he's doing the illustrations and the book oh, art. Wow. And, and, uh, so we're, we're finishing the art now and it'll be coming out in fall. It's called, uh, uh, right now the title is called Chloe and the mountain sea or the mountain sea scrolls. And I'll leave, um, Lazo, I'll leave with you and your readers a, a link. I have a like a web page that sort of gives a sneak peek into the plot, and they can actually read the first chapter, right, and say, "Oh, okay, this is how this 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 story is going to go." Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll let I'll let you know uh, when it's published, and we can let everybody else know. And then at some point, maybe someone who's very ambitious, a movie producer. <laughs> yeah, I'll talk to a few in Hollywood. I'll be there tomorrow. Uh, thanks, Laszlo. <laughs> Yeah, sounds great. Chinese fantasy fiction from the from the Xia Chao. Wow, that's got potential, man. Right. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate it. Let's yeah. hope. So if any listeners want to connect with you, what's your uh, preferred platform of communication? Yeah, reach out on LinkedIn. It's easy, right? Just Kyle David Anderson. I'll put your link uh, at the show notes. Okay, that'd be great. And I'll, yeah, I'll, have, uh, I'll have everything there. Okay, we'll have my LinkedIn and then the link to that to the novel I just finished. And yeah, yeah, just reach out to me. I'm, I I love meeting new people, uh, hearing about new projects, collaborating in 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 ways that get the best of Chinese culture and history out there. Oh man, ain't they at the best? Right. We need we need to we need to hear it right because we're just being fed a certain diet and we need to we need to hear the good stuff. Yeah, yeah. I just celebrated my 12th year doing the China History Podcast uh, last week. And uh, congratulations. Not running out of material. No. Nope. Anytime soon that I know of. You won't. Yeah. With <laughs> new suggestions coming every day. Right. So, uh, yeah. So, anyway, Kyle Anderson, once again, this was a pleasure. Thank you. And this here is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles, inviting you to consider coming back next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast. And the China History Podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Laszlo and his guest. Good stuff, man. Yeah, yeah. Hold on. I'm going to go get me a shot of tequila. (laughs) All right. That was nice. That went well. Yeah, such a great story. I mean, how she saved the lives and then she goes back and saves this terrible Nazi war criminal. Saves the criminal. I know. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I really like this story. And, you know, I come out with so many uh, stories like these and people say, wow, you know, I never heard this before, no matter, you know, Chinese or Western or which country they are in the world. Some of these stories are just so magnificent and wow, they just, you know, somehow never managed to see the light of day in our popular world history and culture. She wasn't doing us any favors by suppressing it either, right? Not really. No, she didn't want that story to get out. Well, it did. And uh, I'm glad that it did. Did you dig and find out about Joel Lun and what happened to him afterward? He Did he stay in China or did he go to Taiwan? It was a bummer, dude. Yeah, he went to Taiwan and Zhang Jiexue fucked up mm. his family big time. Killed it, like killed a bunch of people. It was horrible. It was pretty bad. So I think from your perspective, you might find that to be the most interesting thing. So he goes back and tries and loses all his wealth, obviously, right? Like everybody. You know, John J. Sher puts everyone in these like, you know, studio apartments with their 30 people and four wives. Right. And 
basically makes everyone tough it out. And, uh, and then two of his kids defect Mm. and they become informants for the communist party. Wow. Zhang Jae sure finds out and obviously writes him off Hmm. and, and, uh, has his daughter-in-law and his son killed. Like it's, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. And so it paints this picture where you're like, okay, so the enemy becomes the hero, right? Falkenhausen. And then the hero really Joel Lun, like is killed by John. Well, he's not killed, but he's sort of like humiliated. And his, his family is reduced to, you know, ashes by John Jasher. That's just like, Oh my God. If you read this story, there was this weird relationship between Joel Lun when he was rising in the ranks and Zhang Jaishir's wife. Mm, I don't know about that. It. It's 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 implied to be ambiguous in the text. And I'm like, huh? Like, they didn't get explicit, but he was her calligraphy teacher. She was always asking him mm. to come over. Like, weird stuff. Wow. So anyway, I'm just putting it out there. Yeah. Who knows? Well, Laszlo, this is great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this was a great pleasure and a great story, and uh, this will be coming out soon. I'll send you the finished product, give you a sneak preview before all my millions of listeners around the world check it out. I know you've got a big group of listeners, but you're going to probably see a a bump because Eileen Press wants to put it out. They told me, hey, hey. Let me know when that thing comes out because I think they'll they'll juice it a little bit too. Where's Eileen? Eileen Press? Are they Taiwan or mainland? Nanjing. Nanjing. Oh, Nanjing. Oh, yeah, they're okay. Jiangsu. They're 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 Jiangsu like a big Jiangsu press. Ah, okay. Well, let's call it a night. Uh, what is it? Uh, five eight o'clock by you. Uh, I don't want to keep you up so late. I appreciate it again, and I can't I can't wait to see it. Yeah, yeah, I'll send it to you uh, in the next few days. All right? All right, brother, you take it easy. All right, I'll be in touch. I'll talk to you in a few days. Bao zhong, bao zhong. All right, bao zhong, bao zhong. Hey, thanks, Lazo. You take it easy.